Blog Talk Radio. Hello to everyone out there and good morning. Today is Monday, June 6th. My name is Dr. Joseph Servan, Editor-in-Chief of Epilepsy.com, and this is Hallway Conversations, our podcast on the site devoted to topical issues uh, pertaining to all things epilepsy and seizures. I'm excited today because we're going to do a topic that we have covered in a different way in the past, primarily relating to uh, the use of a particular therapy for seizures and epilepsy, but we're going to talk about the laws governing a particular therapy. And, of course, this could only mean uh, cannabis or or cannabidiols, and uh, what does that mean from a legal or, uh, or where do we sit from a regulatory standpoint, if you will. Um, joining us today is an expert on this topic. Uh, she is uh, Ms. Alice Mead. She is Vice President for U.S. Professional Relations for GW Pharma, uh, and uh, she has uh, fairly much uh, a, a fairly broad knowledge on what is going on with the cannabidiol laws in the United States. Today's podcast, we're titling The State of the Union of Those Laws, and joining me today is Ms. Mead. Alice, it is a pleasure to have you on Hallway Conversations. Well, good morning, Joe, and thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I think it will be very interesting. Um, I've been with GW for 17 of its 18 years, and I'm an attorney by training. You know, I've always... I've always felt that GW was a real trailblazer because we are the first company in the world to take a botanically derived cannabis extract down the FDA pathway. So we are now completing the last stage of clinical trials in two types of of childhood epilepsies, Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And in general, you know, the U.S. legal environment is incredibly complex on this topic, and my role is to make sure that we can navigate that so we can actually conduct the research and develop our product without interference from, let's say, political obstacles. And I was closely involved with the DEA and the state-controlled drugs agencies to set up the expanded access programs. of I think now there are 22 around the country that are going to involve over 900 children and adults with different types of uh, intractable epilepsies. Excellent. So, Alice, so obviously you come into it with this important ex, uh, experience and knowledge that I think our listeners are going to be very paying very close attention to. Let's dive right into it and um, kind of give us at least that beginning uh, primer or primer on schedules. What are schedules as defined by the Drug Enforcement Administration as it pertains to cannabis? Well, the Controlled Substances Act, or or CSA for short, so it has five schedules, uh, and something is placed in the schedule depending on its medical usefulness and its abuse potential. So Schedule I substances are subject to the strictest, highest controls. They are considered to have no currently accepted medical use in the U.S., and they have a high potential for abuse. So that includes things like marijuana, TAC, but also ibogaine, mescaline, psilocybin, peyote, heroin, and a number of other substances. Now, Schedule II substances are still pretty strictly regulated, but less so. Um, And they also have a high potential for abuse, but they have an accepted medical use. 
and that would include the opioids, for example, and the stimulants like Ritalin. And then Schedules 3 through 5 had an accepted medical use but lesser degrees of abuse potential. Which, which again, it's amazing trying to keep up with all of these. Like, so give us a definition of what is considered acceptable medical use per the Drug Enforcement Administration or the DEA. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, this is really, really interesting and confusing because it's not defined in the CSA or in the regulations. Those are that are in the Code of Federal Regulations that implement the CSA. So. So that's why it's uncertain, but the DEA has developed five criteria to define the idea. Um, and those criteria are that the drug's chemistry has to be known and reproducible, there must be adequate safety studies, there must be adequate and well-controlled studies proving efficacy, the drug or product has to be accepted by qualified experts, and the scientific evidence must be widely available. Now, these criteria have been upheld by the federal courts, but I, I just kind of like to mention that FDA approval of a Schedule I product is sufficient to establish accepted medical use, but there still has to be a complete package of abuse liability studies to determine which of a lower schedules other than one that product would be placed in, and it, then there has to be a full rescheduling administrative process that the product has to go through before the rescheduling is complete. Well, what uh, can you give us a sense of what uh, a difference? Because we hear this a lot in medications that just recently got approved. Uh, what, when they talk about these schedules, what's the difference between a one and a two substance uh, as it pertains to these uh, medications in practice? Well, as I said, both Schedule One and Two have a high potential for abuse. But the drugs in Schedule One can only be administered lawfully uh, as part of a federally approved research program. So in their practices, physicians can only recommend Schedule One substances like cannabis. So that's why you hear about physician recommendations in all these medical marijuana laws. Now, right. we know that physicians can prescribe Schedule Two substances, although, to be clear, only once they're incorporated into FDA-approved products because FDA approves uh, specific finished products and not active pharmaceutical ingredients or, or herbal components. What, um, what, when, you're, when we're looking at Schedule One versus the other medications, um, how does that work if you're trying to do research to see whether you can determine a usefulness for, for one of these compounds that make worries uh, officials, if you will? Yes, it, it, research is an interesting uh, issue with regard to the two kinds of substances. So we all, we all know physicians have to have their medical licenses to practice medicine in their state. And they can get DEA licenses to prescribe and dispense controlled drugs in Schedules 2 through 5. But what most people really don't know is that physicians may conduct research within those Schedules 2 through 5 as a coincident activity of their prescriber license without having to get any additional DEA or state license. But if it's a Schedule One substance that's the subject of the research, then a special DEA license, Schedule One license is required, and usually a special state Schedule One license. And these state and federal license processes uh, 
don't necessarily happen in parallel. They happen usually one after the other. So the whole process can be really quite prolonged. Wow. Uh, as I listen to this, I get the complexity. That So kind of taking us into cannabis or cannabidiol, what, what's the legal current legal status of cannabidiol? Well, CBD is not explicitly listed in the CSA or in the regulations, but it's controlled in Schedule One because it's part of the definition of marijuana, which includes marijuana's compounds and derivatives. And actually, that's also true of the 100 and plus other individual cannabinoids that are in the cannabis plant. Only THC was listed by Congress separately in Schedule One. although I want to mention that a synthetic THC FDA-approved product called Marinol is in Schedule Three. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about hemp, too, because I think there's a lot of interest sure. and confusion about hemp since, you know, CBD can be derived from hemp. Um, so the CSA, the Controlled Substances Act, doesn't define hemp. It defines marijuana. And then it exempts from that definition certain parts of the plant, the stalk and the fiber and the sterilized seeds and preparations made from them because Congress thought that those parts had virtually no cannabinoids. But if cannabinoids, including CBD, are extracted from the plant, including the exempted parts, then that extract is still considered marijuana and a Schedule One substance. So hemp seeds and hemp seed oil are, have a lot of nutritive value, but they don't have any cannabinoids. The cannabinoids are in the flower, flowering portion and a little bit in the leaves, and there's some special strains in Canada that may have some on the stalk. So hemp seed oil is sometimes used to dissolve the sticky CBD extract that comes from the, leaf, the flowers, um, but something else could be used. Uh, cannabinoids just don't dissolve in water, so it could be sesame oil or coconut oil or olive oil. Um, but when hemp seed oil is used, hence you get the name CBD hemp oil. And there's also a lot of confusion about the scope of what's called the Farm Bill or the Agricultural Act of 2014. Um, this act allows institutions of higher education like universities or state departments of agriculture to grow industrial hemp for certain kinds of research, research under an agricultural pilot program, or other kinds of uh, research, including academic research, as long as state law permits the cultivation of, of the hemp strain. And this law, this act, defines for the purposes of that act, industrial hemp as having not more than 0.3% THC, but it doesn't define research. So there's been a lot of uncertainty about the scope of the act, um, but there's probably Congress was thinking about historical uses of industrial right. hemp, the stock, the fiber, and the seeds, and it, no doubt was not thinking of circumventing the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the uh, California Attorney General actually has looked into this and concluded that the Farm Bill doesn't authorize cultivation for purposes of manufacturing commercial products or selling them, um, medical or otherwise. And she's also opined that it doesn't permit other entities other than the ones I mentioned to <clears throat> cultivate industrial hemp for research or any other purpose. So actually the farm bill is kind of narrow in scope. And then people ask me, well, how is it that there's all this hemp being cultivated by private people and they're extracting CBD and selling it? And all I can say is, well, the Department of Justice issued a memorandum in 2013 called the Cole Memo after its author 
and basically it was um, giving guidance to U.S. Attorneys General regarding prosecutorial discretion. And it said, Mm -hmm. well, the DOJ um, doesn't consider it a priority to take action against individuals that are acting in compliance with state cannabis laws as long as the state has some effective regulatory controls and as long as those cannabis activities don't adversely affect these certain federal interests like distribution to minors. And so uh, it's clear that if hemp is being cultivated outside of the purview of the Farm Bill, it's covered by the Cole Memo. Interesting. These are kind of, it gets to such nuances when you think about, uh, you know, in the eyes of the beholder, if you will. Right. Uh, Can, can, you know, you mentioned, like, you know, for instance, the hemp side, that there's some uh, neutrative values of some of this, and sometimes you can can derive in some, you know, uh, potentially derive THC or other things from it. Is, can cannabidiol can it be considered a supplement or a nutraceutical because it is grown as a plant or derived from it? Well, the word nutraceutical, we use it a lot, um, isn't something FDA recognizes as a category. So it doesn't regulate nutraceuticals as such. So a nutraceutical is either going to be regulated by FDA as a food or as a dietary supplement or as a drug. Now, with regard to dietary supplements, FDA determined that CBD isn't, can't be included in the definition of dietary supplements under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act because there's a provision that says that if FDA has authorized a substance like CBD to be studied in a clinical trial and those clinical trials have begun and the public is aware of it, say, through a press release, then products containing that substance, so CBD-containing products, can't be subsequently sold as dietary supplements. And FDA determined that CBD was being studied as of 2006 in U.S. clinical trials. Now, there's an exception if the substance had been marketed as a dietary supplement or a food before the clinical trials were authorized. But based on the available labels and looking at all the evidence that they have, FDA concluded that CBD wasn't being previously marketed. Now, as I said, hemp seed oil was being previously marketed, but that does not contain CBD. Okay. Let me kind of uh, kind of go to a slightly different direction, and and let's talk about what what you know now. I, you see so much emphasis on labeling and making sure that labels are appropriate. What medical claims can be made at this time with regards to cannabidiol? Well, you know, an investigational CBD drug like ours can't make any medical claims, you know, unless and until it's approved by FDA, and then those claims have to be consistent with the approved label. But setting that aside for a moment, um, any item is considered by FDA, could be water for a matter of fact, a drug. So FDA would consider it to be a drug, so therefore would have to go through the FDA approval process if it's intended to be used to cure or mitigate or treat or prevent a disease. So FDA looks at medical claims in advertising or labeling or websites to determine whether what the intended use is. So if it's a drug, because it's intended to be used, etc., then it must have gone through the FDA approval process. Otherwise, any medical claims make it misbranded. And putting on a disclaimer like these statements haven't been evaluated by FDA won't cure that misbranding. 
So in 2015 and 2016, FDA issued warning letters to a number of vendors of CBD products. We're selling them online. Uh, FDA said that the products were misbranded due to the medical claims. And then actually FDA took the unusual step and tested those products and found that many of them had no CBD and many of the rest, most of the rest of them actually had much less CBD than what was on the label and sometimes more THC. So what, let me kind of now take us into, because you, you know, GW is very much putting out a pharmaceutical, uh, going through down the typical pharmaceutical route, obviously, for CBD. So what, Regular re- regulatory requirements for quality is necessary to be, you know, to show that this is uh, what we're saying we're getting in cannabis products. And I think this becomes very important because people always ask me, like, you know, as, uh, like, can I just go to a dispensary anywhere and pick something up and use this for epilepsy? So what are the regulatory requirements for quality as it pertains to cannabis products as it as coming down the pike? Uh, for GW, for that matter. Well, you know, FDA has has given a guidance on uh, the development of botanical drug products. So anyone, like us or anyone else, who wants to take complex botanical material of any sort into a prescription medication has to look at that guidance. Now, it's a little more lenient in the early stages of research, but at the end of the of the research, it's it's very rigorous with regard to manufacturing. So that would be the degree of characterization, the batch-to-batch consistency, and, you know, of course, there have to be the randomized placebo-controlled trials. So under that, herbal plants or herbal material would have to be grown under very strict conditions to ensure that, that they are standardized and reproducible. And then it's probably likely that the active ingredients would have to be extracted and put into some kind of appropriate delivery system. There's really no precedent in the FDA process for approving herbal material itself as a prescription medicine. But, okay, that being said, there is a high-tech inhaler being developed in Israel that uses uh, cannabis granules. And the argument's been made, like, what about highly standardized plant material, which can be either raw or decarboxylated, that then is milled, finely milled, and encapsulated. And I think it remains to be seen whether such products actually could successfully go through the FDA process. You know, I just want to mention that cannabinoids are hard to work with. They're not water-soluble. They degrade with light and heat and time. Um, The decarboxylation step, which takes things like THCA, the acid form, to THC, can be tricky. So it's it's not easy to develop a precise and stable dosage form. I think it's fair to say that most cannabis-derived products that are purchased in dispensaries or online are not reliably quality controlled. Um, I do want to say that some states are trying to impose labeling and testing requirements, and some of the manufacturers are trying to produce higher quality products. Got it. Here, here's a question that comes up, though, uh, and, and in terms of the tra- you know the state of affairs, if you're kind of taking uh, cannabis, uh, CBD or cannabis, and you're going to visit a relative, or you're going to kind of cross a state line. Can you briefly describe the you know what happens with, about the laws in terms of transporting this material across different states? 
Right. The transporting can be tricky. Um, transporting across state lines is usually not lawful under state law unless the state recognizes medical cards from another state, like a type of reciprocity, or right. if the patient is participating in an FDA-approved clinical trial. But even if the patient is participating in a clinical trial, the Controlled Substances Act doesn't allow that patient to take a cannabis preparation out of the U.S. or bring it into the U.S. So the patient is pretty much confined to the U.S. during the clinical trial and any open-label extension. And that's actually very important to know. Yeah. We're in our last uh, minute or so, Alice, and this is this is actually I could spend a, an hour or several hours because this is all fascinating to me, um, and my and I suspect to our listeners as well. What main take-home messages? Do you want to leave with our listeners today with regards to the legal state of the union, if you will, of CBD in the U.S. at this time? Well, I do have some thoughts, Joe. Um, you know, building, building a body of good science around a medicinal product takes time, and it's really understandable that desperate patients and their families can be really frustrated with this process and want to find solutions that are, are more readily available to them. And we've all heard these anecdotal reports of benefit in the media, and these cases can be so extremely moving. But, but they don't tell us how many patients will really get that benefit from a product and how many get no benefit or what the side effects are or what the proper dose might be. And this makes it really difficult for families and patients to navigate treatment on their own. And that's why FDA insists on this highest level of evidence, these placebo-controlled trials with large numbers of, of patients and a large body of other studies that most people don't even realize are going on in the background that all together provide that kind of information to patients and to their physicians so they can make truly informed choices. What's the, if people want more information on this, um, What's the best avenue for contact or source that you'd recommend for our listeners? Because I get this question all the time. Uh, what would you suggest in that regard? Oh, sure. We're happy to take questions. Um, the question should be sent to medinfo, that's one word, dot USA at GWFARM, that's P-H-A-R-M, dot com. Thank you, Alice. I, I, I really appreciate this. Um, we have been talking with uh, Ms. Alice Mead. She is uh, the Vice President for U.S. Professional Relations at GW Pharma. She's been uh, kind of giving us the lowdown on the legal status, if you will, of CBD in the United States. Um, Alice, I, I hope that as things transpire uh, with the product and all that, we can bring you back and maybe we could talk even some more, depending on how everything kind of plays out uh, with uh, CBD uh, as uh, it goes down the FDA route. Well, thank you, Joe. I'd love that. Um, and I really enjoyed talking with you today. Uh, it's been great talking to you. And to all of our listeners out there, we've been talking to Ms. Alice Mead, and uh, you heard uh, that she gave us a, a location if you want further information. Uh, with regards to CBD laws in the United States, or anything CBD at this point. Um, I hope to all of our listeners out there that you found this helpful and useful for you. 
And very importantly, I hope you get a chance to join us back here on Hallway Conversations at a future podcast. To everyone out there, I hope you have a fantastic day uh, and uh, stay cool. Talk to you later.